You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A.com. We're in Acts and we're in Athens, right? Last week we saw that the gospel went to Europe for the first time and it and specifically into northern Greece. And uh, that was in Philippi. And then after Philippi, they went to Thessalonica. And as Paul and Silas preached the gospel there, riots broke out. They had to sneak them out of town. So from Thessalonica, they went to Berea. Uh, same thing happened in Berea. Effective ministry, preaching the gospel. Uh, a lot of opposition is aroused. So this time they send Paul by himself. Paul who has this, he, he's the one with the real target on his back. They send Paul to Athens. I suppose missionaries would call that a furlough. Uh, you know, just get off the field for a while. We're going to send you to Athens. Uh, and uh, while he's in Athens, he does what you and I would do. He goes sightseeing. And, uh, and that's what we pick up here. That's where we pick up in our text this morning. Acts chapter 17, uh, verses 16 through 34. Um, if it's printed for you in the bulletin if you don't have a Bible. And uh, I'm going to ask you, if you're able, it's a long reading, so if you're able, please stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. Acts 17, starting at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, uh, that is for Silas and Timothy, uh, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your poets, own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. 
Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray before we start. Prepare our hearts, Father, to accept your word. Silence in us any voices but your own so that we may hear your word and not just hear it but also do it through Jesus, our Lord, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, several years ago, uh, Linda and I were uh, at the Areopagus, along with some of you. Um, we were not listening to Paul, but we had a close second. We had our own Dr. Peter Jones, who was uh, reflecting on this passage, as a matter of fact. Um, and at the Areopagus is very close to the Acropolis. It's right there, and as you're standing at the Areopagus, you're, 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 you're looking up at the Parthenon, the great temple to the, uh, to the patron uh, goddess of Athens, Athena. And it was easy to imagine being there. It was easy to imagine Paul standing there, uh, looking out at uh, the Parthenon uh, and the other temples as he testified about Jesus Christ to the intellectual elites of Athens. You need to know that, that uh, though, though Athens had seen its glory days already, it was still the intellectual capital of the known world. Uh, this, this, it, was, it was the intellectual center uh, of the world. Now we live in a time when public discourse, like we just read, has devolved into name-calling, and uh, yelling over each other and uh, assuming the worst about the people that we might disagree with or regarding people who we disagree with as irredeemable enemies. And as people who follow Jesus Christ, we need to be different. We have to resist that downward pressure of the culture and engage our fellow citizens in the same spirit as Jesus uh, and in the same spirit as Paul. You know, as I look at this interaction that Paul had with these intellectuals in Athens, I see three R's, right? First of all, he had regard for the people of Athens, didn't he? 
I mean, he was, uh, he was concerned about their spiritual condition. That's verse 16, as he was walking around and seeing a city full uh, of idols, it provoked him, it upset him that seeing a, this gigantic, wonderful city uh, under the influence of, of idols that were not helping their people, but enslaving them. In addition to having regard for the people of Athens, what did he do? He reasoned with them, right? Um, he reasoned with them. Verse 17, the Greek word there that we translate reasoned is a word that's defined as instructional discourse that involves the exchange of questions and opinions. It's, you know, in law school, uh, we, we were taught by the Socratic method, which in fact was born right here in Athens. It's kind of that. It's, it's, it's getting inside your opponent's head, getting inside their worldview with, with questions, with opinion exchange, right? Trying to understand each other and persuade each other, right? So he had regard, he reasoned, he didn't yell, Right, he didn't just uh, just assert his position uh, and say you must agree with me. He reasoned with them, and then and then finally he was respectful. He was respectful, even when the people he was talking to weren't respectful. Right before he spoke at the Areopagus in uh, verse eighteen, they insulted him. It was a verse eighteen. They call him a babbler. That doesn't sound like much. The the word literally means. Um, idea picker. So basically what they're saying is you're an intellectual lightweight that doesn't have an original thought in his head. You're just picking up stuff from various sources and mashing it together, thinking you're smart. And then after he spoke at the Areopagus, verse 32, they mocked him, at least some of them did. And yet Paul didn't go down to their level, did he? He spoke respectfully. And you hear that tone of respect right at the very beginning. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. But don't for a moment think, as I think a lot of people do now today in our culture, that unless you're a jerk, you're not defending your position. Don't for a moment think that Paul, having regard, spiritual regard for these people, reasoning with them, being respectful to them, meant that Paul was somehow soft peddling the truth. He did no such thing, right? I know a lot of people read Acts 17 and they, and they analyze it as, as, as Paul sort of throwing out the Bible, uh, using the sources of, the, of the, the pagan philosophers, which he does do. He does use their sources. He quotes them twice. Uh, uh, and, and sort of developing a natural theology, to, trying to argue them uh, by uh, reference to uh, you know, general revelation, just but 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 not from uh, God's word, and actually, that's not what's going on here. Yet Paul didn't cite chapter and verse. Uh, that would not have meant anything to those Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. But this this is a Bible-filled address. This is what he's doing here: is using God's revelation. God's word to deconstruct 
the, the, the pagan faith of these Athenians, and while at the same time biblically defending a full-orbed Christian worldview. And what I hope, as if for you Christians in here, I hope that at the end of this, uh, you know, reflection on on Paul's address here that will help you think about how you might engage uh, your world, right? Engage the people that you talk to uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where are those points of contact? Uh, How can you uh, bring God's truth into uh, the conversation? And if you're not a Christian today, What I hope you hear today will cause you, like Dionysius the Areopagite, to question your religious presuppositions, right? Because people were converted by this speech, right? We know two of them. Dionysius, who was a member of the Areopagus Council, a woman named Damaris, and others with those two were converted that day. So let's look at this address under three headings. And, and every heading relates to God. It's all, they're all the same God, our God. But here's, here, the first heading is this, the God who humans try to suppress. The God who humans try to suppress. Secondly, the God who will not be suppressed. And then third, the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. The God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So that's where we're going here. So first, the God who humans try to suppress. Uh, So Paul sees, as he's walking around, this altar dedicated to the unknown God, verse 23. That, by the way, that's archaeologically uh, verified. In fact, we have found any number of altars uh, dedicated to unknown God. Gods. Uh, this was not, you know, the, the Athenians were very interested in covering their bases, apparently. Um, but it's, it's seeing that altar to, to the unknown God that is, is one of the big reasons why he said they were very religious. But what he's not doing here, and I think that we, we really need to understand this, he's not commending them for their spirituality. You know, very good of you to recognize an unknown God. No, he's not commending them for their spirituality. He's critiquing them for their ignorance. Right? Their ignorance is willful. They should know better. Uh, this is one scholar who uh, said it this way. He says, Paul is leading here with his chin. Right? Here he is in the intellectual capital of the world and he's telling these intellectual elites, he's calling them out for their ignorance. That's what he's doing. Um, our translations uh, kind of mask it when it says uh, in verse 23, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. But you know, that when you read it that way, the unknown is sort of um, describing God, right? He's the unknown God, but that's not how the the Greek reads. Really, the Greek better translated it would be, "What therefore you worship ignorantly, this I proclaim to you." 
See, he's, he's, he's not talking about the unknownness of God so much as the ignorance of their worship. They should know better, he says, right? And Paul, note, you know, Paul got into this more fully in Romans chapter one, but you know, where, where Paul says that every human being knows about God from what has been made, right? We, we know his divine nature and his, and his power. Uh, we we uh, are therefore uh, without excuse, Paul says, but what we do with that knowledge is we, tr- we try to suppress it. We suppress what we know to be true uh, uh, of God. Um, and that's really what is going on here with this altar to the unknown God. See, they, they have a sense that their idols are deficient, right? That Athena isn't delivering. And Mars isn't delivering. Uh, and so they... they, they they, they, they sense that there's something else out there. There's another God out there. And, and, and that sense is right. That's the sense that Paul's talking about in Romans 1. We all know at some level that there is the one true God out there. But, on the, but, but, but although we know him, we don't really want to know him. You know, sin wants, keeps God at arm's length. Sin says, I want to be the master of my life. I don't want to bow the knee to, to anyone. And so we, we, we want to keep God at a, at a comfortable uh, distance. It's better that we worship him as the unknown God. He's safer that way. Now, why all this talk? I mean, this may sound culturally remote to you, right? As, as Robin pointed out. I mean, we, we don't live uh, in, a, in a culture with lots of temples and statues and, and, and obvious uh, idol worship. Um, but I, I'm, I'm going to assert to you that we still, there are still signs of the unknown God in our culture. And people still go to that unknown God, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously. And, that, and those points, those times can be points of contact between you and those people that you know. Um, you know, the Athenians, were, they, at least they were intellectually honest enough to admit by erecting these statues that, that, that they were ignorant of, of some things. We, we don't tend to be as intellectually honest in our culture today, but let me let me show you where a couple of places where I th- I think we see people falling back on the unknown God. Okay, first one obvious one to me as I thought about it. Are you like me? I have a ton of friends who say that I'm spiritual but not religious. How many times you got friends that way? You hear it. You hear it all the time, right? I'm spiritual, but not religious. Those are the people that would have built the altar to the unknown God. Right? That's exactly what that, that, it's an admission that, okay, I have a vague notion that there's a God out there, but I'm going to just sort of not be religious about it. Right? I, I will keep him at arm's length. I'll keep him unknown, so I won't have to be so accountable to him. Right? The spiritual but not religious people 
are, you know, when you can t- talk to them and you say, what, what is that? Why, why do you say you're spiritual? What, what is it that you are sensing? What is it you're picking up? It's the unknown God, isn't it? Another example where you see people indirectly needing the unknown God uh, is, is when they, when a person will insist uh, on an absolute moral standard. He, you know, a person, he or she will say some, something is absolutely wrong. It's just wrong in every case. Right? I was tr- trying to think of some obvious examples. We've got, um, maybe it's the honor killings that still happen in India, parts of India where they are uh, accepted, tolerated. Uh, maybe it's the, 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 the practice of sati, widow uh, burning. Also in rural parts, still practiced in some rural parts uh, of the Hindu world. Now, people look at those practices and say, uh, honor killings, right? Widow burnings. You know, your husband dies, we're going to burn you to death. Um, Most of us will insist, that's wrong. That's just wrong. And we don't care whether there are cultures that say it's okay. That's, they're right, they're wrong. It's not okay. It's, uh, it's that th- those practices are just wrong. Well, where are they getting that? On what basis are you uh, cl- claiming that those practices are absolutely wrong? That depends upon an absolute standard to which all human beings are accountable. Where does that come from? I mean, you can get to moral feelings maybe from evolution, if you want to argue that, or cultural consensus, but you can't get to moral obligation that way. Moral obligation requires a personal, a personal God to whom we are morally obligated. A God who stands absolutely against evil. It's the unknown God. These people who are arguing against this as wrong are appealing to the unknown God. See, and that can become a point of contact. I'll give you a very specific and very local example. Uh, California. Uh, Our state has some of the most liberal abortion laws in the country, right? And, and, and a majority of our state's population celebrates that fact as a positive good that our liberal abortion laws essentially make California a safe haven uh, in our country for abortions. That's on one side. And yet you need to know that California also has on the books something called the fetal murder law. Right? And we also celebrate that. California, not every state has a fetal murder law. California does. And in fact, you saw it in action a few years back in the Scott and Lacey Peterson murder trial. Right? And Scott Peterson was ultimately convicted of first degree murder of his wife and the second degree murder of his unborn son. Now, there is an irrational inconsistency, right? 
On the one hand, right, we're celebrating the most liberal abortion laws in the country, but we can't get away from the unknown God. We know that killing a baby in utero is wrong, and so you have the fetal murder law. See? You can't get away from the unknown God. People need him. And you see, at these these points of contact is where you can engage your friends and your neighbors and your family members with the truth about Jesus. So that's the first one. The God who humans try to suppress, let's look at the God who will not be suppressed. Epicureans and Stoics are... um, Luke mentions that that's who Paul was dealing with here. Um, And so I did a little background reading. Uh, My philosophy, history of philosophy isn't very good. So, you know, and I wanted to see what their spirituality was. And what struck me as I just, you know, summarizing their their, their theological convictions, it strikes me as just, you might as well be in California in 2023. Uh, Epicureans were consistent materialists. That is, there is, no, there, there is the, the, what you see is what you get, right? No real spirit world. Uh, the world's made up, everything's made up of atoms. They, they had, they had a, a, a rudimentary atomic theory. Uh, these atoms uh, eventually break down and dissipate, which is what you're going to do when you die. Uh, and uh, so there is no afterlife. Uh, you die, you're done. There's no resurrection. Uh, there is no divine judgment. Some Epicureans would admit to there being gods. There might be gods. We're agnostic on that. There might be gods. But it doesn't really matter because they're distant and disinterested. Right? So no divine judgment. I mean, you don't have to worry about divine judgment. So what, you know, the Epicureans are often, uh, their, their, their position is summarized, right? Eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow you die, right? Just seek enjoyment in this life now because this is all you have. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. And the Stoics were, were different, but, but also you see this. The Stoics were almost pantheistic. The Stoics were the ones that talk about the logos, right? They said that the divine is an impersonal force called the logos. It's, it's an impersonal principle of reason that permeates everything in the universe. You have it. In you, trees have it, rocks have it, planets have it. It's all this, the Logos is just permeates everything. We're all interconnected. Uh, and when you die, you're just sort of, you, you, you're absorbed into the Logos, right? You, you, you lose your personality. Um, uh, they, they also said that history doesn't really have any direction or meaning. Uh, it, it just, it kind of, they said history is cyclical. It kind of, it goes, starts with chaos, then, then out of chaos comes order, then the order breaks down, it goes back to chaos, and then, it, and then that cycle uh, re- repeats. Um, so Stoics said 
you know, no real meaning to history, no resurrection, no divine judgment. Again, does it, all this sounds familiar, right? These are the kinds of things I hear all the time uh, as the theological convictions of a lot of people, religious convictions of a lot of people. And by the way, I mean, they will assert them uh, as, as, as uh, fact, but they, they, can't, they can't tell you there's no afterlife any more than you can. They can't prove to you that there's no afterlife any more than you can prove to them that there is. Right? These are, these are faith convictions. So what does Paul say uh, to these people? about the God who they don't want to know. Well, he's not going to be, he's not going to stay suppressed. He's too big to be suppressed, right? Um, so as over against the, the Epicureans who say the gods are distant and disinterested and the Stoics' insistence that, that God is this impersonal force everywhere, Paul says in verses 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, he essentially is what he's doing there is paraphrasing the scriptures. And he is, and he's telling the Athenians uh, that, that, that God, there is one true God, he's the creator of all things, that he is distinct from the world, but he also engages with the world, right? In him we live and move and have our being. Quoting a Stoic philosopher. He desires to be in relationship with human beings. He rules the world as Lord. He manages the affairs of human beings, uh, the affairs of human beings as the sovereign God who gives life and breath and everything to his creatures. Now, friends, it's a beautiful statement, isn't it? And what you need to know is that though he wasn't quoting or citing them chapter and verse because that wouldn't have meant anything to them, he is pulling all of this right out of the Bible. Listen to Isaiah 42.5. The Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. You see, he's just, he's just paraphrasing scripture here to the Athenians. He's giving them God's truth. He goes on to say, you know, a God that big doesn't dwell in man-made temples. And, and there he's riffing on Isaiah 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? You know, he's looking up the Parthenon. You think God would dwell in that? He's much too big. And not only that, he's not served by us, right? The idea there, he's not served by human hands, right? What was the whole point of pagan worship? You'd run, go to those temples with meat and fruit and all kinds of stuff. Why? Because that's how the gods ate. And Paul says, really? Uh, you know, he, he, a God that big doesn't need you. He isn't served by you. And there he's drawing on Psalm 50. Here's God speaking in Psalm 50. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer me a sacrifice of thanksgiving. They weren't thanking God, were they? 
And finally, you know, he says a God that big can't be reduced to something that his creatures make out of gold or silver or stone, right? You see how he's deconstructing the whole Athenian, uh, you know, religious edifice? He says, really? God has created you and now you're going to turn around and create something out of gold or silver or stone and say, that's God? What's he, where's he getting that? Psalm 115, among other places. One of my favorite uh, anti-idol passages. Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but don't speak. Eyes, but don't see. They have ears, but don't hear. Noses, but don't smell. They have hands, but don't feel. Feet, but don't walk. And they don't make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. See, Paul is not hiding the ball here, is he? He has spiritual regard for these people. He's reasoning with them. He's respectful to them but he gives them truth, biblical truth. He doesn't invent something new, doesn't invent something different that he might think, that he thinks might be more palatable to these Greek intellectuals. He simply communicates basic biblical revelation about God. And here's the takeaway for you and me, because this is our task as well. And, and, and I'll just, I'll quote our, the takeaway from Chuck Colson. The greatest challenge for serious Christians today is not reinventing Christianity, it's rediscovering its core teachings. We don't have to reinvent anything. You don't have to have the imagination to think of some way to present something in some new and earth-shattering way to your friends. Listen, what, what the world needs to hear, what your friends and neighbors need to hear are the core teachings of our faith, right? We just need to, and, and those you know or are learning them, right? Paul is, right, what does Paul do? Where does he start? He goes right back to the creation. God is the creator, One of my favorite books and is, is a book you almost don't have to read because the title is so good, and, and it's by J.B. Phillips, who, who did a wonderful Bible translation, and the book is Your God is Too Small. And if you haven't read that, it's a classic book. I'm sure it's still in print somewhere. Uh, it's, worth, it's worth reading. Your God is Too Small. You see, the, 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 point, the point, that's really what, what, what Paul was getting at here with the Athenians, Right? as he deconstructed their worldview and built up the Christian worldview, they they are left with the conclusion that our gods are too small. And and that's true. If you dispense with with the God of the Bible, uh, you're going to inevitably be left with small gods. And friends, our our people are dying and anxious and hopeless and depressed because their gods are too small. Give them our big God, right? Our God is not too small. Okay, speaking of core teachings um, of, the, of Christianity, right? Paul doesn't just stay in the Old Testament, right? 
He, he goes on to give them the most core teaching of them all, and that's our third and final heading. The God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. The Stoics were insisting that history doesn't really have any direction or meaning or purpose. It's just cyclical. Uh, And Paul says, nope, history is linear. History is being managed by God. God is moving history toward a goal. Look at verses 30 and 31. Right With the coming of Jesus, a significant event has happened. The times have changed. Right? The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now, now, he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he is fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance proof to all by raising him from the dead. Now we've just been through Easter and you know at Easter we focus on the resurrection and and when when I typically focus on the resurrection I think of themes like eternal life, uh, hope, joy, reunion with my loved ones, victory over uh, sin and death. All true, all true about the resurrection. But that is not how Paul treats the resurrection in verse 31, is it? For Paul here, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the proof that God's just judgment of the world is coming. Talk about leading with your chin. Its date is fixed. See, for Paul, the resurrection, at least for Paul here, the resurrection of Jesus is the greatest historical public proclamation that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, he's been vindicated as the Son of God, and he has been given all authority in heaven and earth, including the authority to judge the world. And he earned that right. Jesus earned it, right? How did he earn it? He came. He he came to us, right? He became a human being. He lived a human life, a perfect human life. And then despite living a perfect human life, uh, he died a death by torture uh, uh, which was Jesus bearing God's judgment for the sins of God's people. Right, So that if you are sitting here today and you, you can say, I am trusting in Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior, what that means for you is that when Jesus hung on the cross and, and, and died, he did that for you and your, the judgment for your sin has already been meted out onto Jesus. And so you will, the, the, you will not die in God's coming and certain judgment. The best way to think about that, about God's coming and certain judgment that Paul talks about here is that it is both breathtaking promise and sober warning. It's breathtaking promise and sober warning. For those of us who believe in Jesus, 
the, the judgment day, that fixed day when Jesus Christ returns to judge the world, that will be the wonderful fulfillment of the promise that everything wrong, evil, criminal, unjust, ugly, sinful, shameful, painful, and sad, all of that will be set right. You will be set right. People will look, be, will look at you in the resurrection and be tempted to worship you because you'll be like Jesus. The world will be set right. God's judgment is the fulfillment of the promise of paradise restored. but it's also a sober warning to those who, like some of those Athenians, mocked or ignored the message. You mock or ignore Jesus, that's going to leave you exposed to God's just judgment. Uh, And that's what Paul was concerned about. Paul wants these Athenians to join him to join him in, in, in the eternal life with our, our, with our Lord. And, and so that's why he's giving them this warning in love. It's not in, out of meanness or, you know, sort of critical judging spirit. It's, it's, a, it's a warning of love. Last week I said it was the responsibility of every person on the planet to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Today I have to say something even stronger. It's not just your responsibility, it's your duty. Right? That's what God's, that's what Paul says here. That with the coming of Jesus, right, things changed. Right? Everything changed. And now, after Jesus, God commands all, commands all people everywhere to repent. God commands your repentance. He commands my repentance. It is therefore our duty to obey. What are you going to do? I will tell you this, as Bob Dylan sang, you got to serve somebody. And if you reject Jesus, you'll, you'll end up serving somebody. But if you bow the knee to Jesus Christ, the servant king, who has both the might and the right to rule his creation. If you bow the knee to him, you're going to discover that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And the life you have will be abundant and eternal and there will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more shame. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... Paul's message here to the Athenians and what we can learn from it. Lord, help us to be sensitive to the points of contact with our friends and neighbors as, as they, uh, they wrestle with, with a God that is unknown to them, you, uh, a God that they are ignorant of, and yet in many ways still turn to you, still rely on you, still need you. Um, help us to help them see that. And, um, and I thank you that, uh, that you are the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. I thank you that you will set all things right and that everything sad will come untrue. Um, that is our hope, Lord. We live in it. 
um, encourage us each day. Lord, it's hard. It's hard, Lord, because what I'm talking about here today, Lord, are invisible realities. And we live in a visible world. You know, Athens was so visible, Lord, and every, you know, Hollywood and social media is so visible to us. Lord, protect us, protect our children from the world, the flesh, and the devil, and help them to see the hyper-reality of what we don't see and the importance of it. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.